Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and in the second part of our two-part podcast for October, my guest is Nicholas Rankin. Nicholas Rankin spent 20 years broadcasting for the BBC World Service, where he was chief producer, Arts. He's also the author of three previous highly praised books for Faber, Dead Man's Chest, following in Robert Louis Stevenson's footsteps from Scotland to Samoa, Telegram from Guernica, a biography of the groundbreaking war reporter G.L. Steer, and Churchill's Wizards, a study of British camouflage and deception in two world wars. That interest in warfare continues in Nick's latest book, Ian Fleming's Commandos, which tells a remarkable story of 30 Assault Unit, a commando unit set up by the young Ian Fleming when he worked in naval intelligence in World War II. The unit's brief was to carry out targeted smash-and-grab raids, known as pinches, to bring back German technology, documents and military secrets that could help the progress of the war in theatres as diverse as North Africa, Sicily and Normandy. As such, it required a special combination of brains and brawn in its makeup. The result, as Rankin puts it, was a private army of never more than 300 men who were never quite approved of by top brass. Later in the interview, we talk about how James Bond grew out of Fleming's intelligence experiences and the new post-war world order. But I began by asking Nick what kept drawing him back to the subject of warfare. My grandfather was a regular soldier. My father got a military OBE in the Second World War. Of course, I grew up in the aftermath of the of the Second World War, but I'm from the generation in the 60s who were all, you know, peace and love, man, uh, and, and hippiedom. In other times, one could have been a soldier, of course. You know, just we were the lucky generation that didn't have national service, didn't have a world war or, or these wars to deal with. And I suppose, yes, I am. I am interested in the subject. I didn't really think I'd spend my time writing about it. But, yes, I suppose what you have in war is extremes of uh, emotion and of uh, suffering and of courage, uh, of good things and bad things. You have a convulsion of society that throws people into new ways of being, uh, new roles. And I suppose, in a sense, the books that I, the three books that I've written in some way are about people who are naturally civilians put into a war context, which is, I think, what most people in these world wars are, or journalists are. They're not actually professional soldiers, but they're caught up in these kind of events. And what happens? What I think is interesting in both world wars is that you do not have the professional military cast who are sometimes rather boneheaded you have imaginative people who may have new ideas and that's interesting how a new technique a new idea is resisted by the military and then may be accepted and I'm interested in imagination and how this is used in war or how or how rather unconventional characters, the artists, the camouflage people, the writers, the imaginative writers. I'm interested in those people and what they do. I mean, in Churchill's Wizards, there's John Buchan, you know, who, who becomes a sort of head of propaganda in the First World War. Bernard Shaw going off to the trenches. T. Lawrence, an Oxford archaeologist who becomes this extraordinary figure in the Arab Revolt. 
Uh, and in the Second World War, people like, I don't know, Dennis Wheatley, who was involved in deception. Ian Fleming, in this latest book, he ha wasn't yet a writer. He wrote his Bond novels afterwards. But this was a bookish person bringing imagination into the hierarchy. So my books aren't really sort of badges and buttons and immense details of, of <laughs> you know, which exact uh, unit. Though one must try and get these things right. You must get the calibre of the gun correct. But, I mean, you shouldn't be obsessed with that. I grew up in the shadow of the Second World War, and that, that war, 50 million people died in that war. It truly was worldwide. There's 120 countries or more. I can't remember how many it is. It is on every continent and every ocean. There are millions of stories still yet to be told. We, we are still turning over the matter of this, world, of this war. As the First World War utterly reshaped Europe, kingdoms crashed, empires fell, and the Versailles Treaty rumbled through history, that all had to be worked out again. We're still living in the after-effects of the uh, Second World War. The frontiers that were set, the countries that became independent, the alliances broken and remade, which is why it's interesting that there's a huge market for books on the Second World War. Anybody who fought in the Second World War has to be at least 85 or 86 years old. This is not the people who fought in it who are reading these books. It's generations later. And why? And it seemed to me that in addition to all those things you just mentioned, you're also interested in human ingenuity. And without being too simplistic about it, I suppose deriving some positives from, from what was you know, a very bloody conflict, as you say. I think I'm interested in intelligence. And I mean that in two meanings, of course. Intelligence as opposed to stupidity, i.e. is there an intelligent way to fight this horrible war? And I'm also interested in intelligence with the sort of capital I in that history. And I think the two are linked in a way because brains must be better than brawn. Though Churchill didn't say it, George Orr must be better than World War in some way. But the tragedy is if you're caught in a war, you have to win it. If you are fighting a war against terrible people, you can't just be a pacifist and turn the other cheek. You have to fight. That's what Bernard Shaw said in the First World War. It's what George Orwell said in the Second World War. It's dreadful, but you've got to win it. So, yes, I am interested in ingenuity. I, uh, we're all interested in ingenuity. I think Churchill was interested in ingenuity. And if you look at the sort of people that he favoured, he didn't think that just because a man was a general meant he was brighter than anybody else. There were difficult, awkward people who needed supporting. Percy Hobart is a case in point. This, this general, who was found as a private in the Home Guard, had previously been a general, was brought back out and started inventing amazing devices for D-Day. All kinds of engines. This is the kind of cranky person you need. And in warfare, you do need unconventional people. There was a lovely sentence that I shall cherish in your book, where you talk about retired army officers in cardigans and glue-stained trousers teaching recruits to put together three-dimensional models using bits of wood and glue and photographs. And that, and that sort of brought home to me that we're talking about military intelligence, but of a very different era. I mean, today we've perhaps got this a hubristic idea that intelligence can be can be all-encompassing. If you have a complete overview of the battlefield, you have complete dominance. It's a very different world, though, the one that you're talking about, isn't it? 
I think the term is full spectrum dominance. That's and this, trying to <laughs> yeah, the full spectrum dominance is, is, of course, an American term, and it is a hubristic Air Force kind of term. I think what was interesting, I listened this morning to Eliza Manning and Buller's Wreath Lecture about security and intelligence. And there's a very intelligent woman and a thoughtful woman and talking about how we do need these things. We need police. We need a security service and a secret intelligence service. And you're naive if you don't think we do need a police or an army and these things. But she's saying they must be run under law and they must have you know, morals and ethics. My view of intelligence is not that we're going to have full spectrum dominance. You can't. It's impossible. That is ridiculous. But you can use, you know, your human intelligence and your ingenuity to try and help save lives. Now, these gentlemen making the models, the 3D models are a very interesting idea because this is to, to say to soldiers who are going into battle, this is what you're going to see. So be familiar with it, and you can go round here and through here. It's easing them into what they're going to face. Now, they're going to face danger to life and limb. They may die doing this, but the more they know and the more they understand of what they're trying to do, the better the battle will be. This is thinking about your men. It is not saying you will walk, march over there and be shot to shit. So these older men who are using their skills to... <laughs> the glue-stained trousers, are trying to help save lives. One of the things that interests me, this, uh, I'm interested in sort of what's hidden history, really, or secret history. And behind ingenuity and intelligence is the fact that you marshal people's minds. So you get all these weird dons and strange people who are so-called retired or over, but they know lots of things. So the, the chapter in here about the inter-services uh, uh, inter topographical department the geographical section that accumulates all the knowledge that is going to be needed to invade a country. This is fascinating because you have all these academics, these geographers, thousands of them working on these projects. They are now using, they wrote these series, 50 books of the, the naval handbooks, which are extraordinary scholarly works. So these people are doing their war work. I came across a philosopher of ancient Greece who was running, they took over an entire department store in Oxford Street, on which they were laying out all the and collating all the intelligence coming in from France. So these academics used to shuffling through papyri and you know dealing with epigraphs from Knossos are now collating information in order to feed it back to the operational people and to help save lives. Now tell me, Nick, how Ian Fleming came to be recruited to naval intelligence. It's an interesting question, because in the book I point out that his brother, Peter Fleming, was recruited by military intelligence in January 1939. Peter Fleming was very famous, wrote for the Times, great traveller, but he was sort of recruited into the early branch of sort of what later became SOE. And it's possible contacts of his may have put forward Ian as an idea. Now, Ian Fleming was younger brother of Peter Fleming. They, their father, Major Valentine Fleming, had been killed in the First World War. He was a friend of Winston Churchill's. They were MPs together. So these boys were patriotic. They had a father to live up to, a war hero. And it's a curious story of he was working as a stockbroker 
in the city of London. Not a very good stockbroker. But the new director of, of naval intelligence, Admiral John Godfrey, was advised by a previous DNI, Admiral Blinker Hall, the famous Reginald Hall of the first, who'd done amazing things in naval intelligence in the First World War, advised him that you need people around you to help you fix us smoothies. He had an old Etonian called Claude Serracold, who was now working in the city. He said, Claude will help you find somebody who is a kind of a fixer that you will need. You'll need these kind of assistants to help you. Reginald Hall in Naval Intelligence in the First World War had an amazing crew of people around him. He had, yes, he had bankers and he had uh, money men, but he also had artists and writers and women and uh, imaginative people. They, they didn't just recruit naval officers because they thought, let's get brains in here. So Admiral Godfrey was advised, you need somebody. And the amazing thing is that the... Uh, the head of the Bank of England um, rang Godfrey up and said, I found your man. <laughs> it was Ian Fleming. He was 31. He hadn't really done anything. Was he 29? He was 29. They met. He said, will you come in? This was in 1939, before the war. Come in, be an assistant. What Fleming had been was a Reuters correspondent. So he could write. He could write crisply and clearly. And he was an old Etonian and a smoothie and a fixer. And he was imaginative. And he was, well, he was Ian Fleming. And uh, he got this job as personal assistant. Now, the director of naval intelligence does not have spies. This is not a secret service. There are naval attaches. But he liaises with all these other ones. And the liaison man was Ian Fleming. So he liaised with the secret intelligence service with the security service, with other agencies that got set up like SOE. And he, SIS ran code breaking at the government code and cipher school. So he went regularly to Bletchley Park. So he was plugged into this entire, or became plugged into this entire network of um, secret services. There were nine secret services in the Second World War. Naval intelligence, I say, is not a secret service, but they have a system of naval attaches around the world. And I suppose naval intelligence is finding out anything that is of use to the Royal Navy. And the Navy was crucial in defending this island nation. So he had an amazing wartime job. He was in that job from 1939 to 1945. He served two directors of naval intelligence and by all accounts did a very good job. So the idea for the commando unit then, just to focus it a bit more, what, what was behind that? What, what, because as you say, there were various other intelligence um, units and forces in existence. So what, what was particularly the task of the, um, the 30 commando that um, Fleming set up? What I argue in the book is that there was a technical lag between the Germans and the British. And in many ways, the Germans had better technology. One of the things when you're fighting a war like that is you need to try and be technically equal with the other side. And in order to do that, you often have to pinch their stuff. And this meant coding machines, torpedoes, mines, stuff like this. It was one of Fleming's ideas was, well, we're in the Navy. Why don't we have some people who are our people who would pinch this stuff for us, would go with forward troops? Now, the commandos had been set up in 1940 by... Um, Churchill 
and anybody could join the commandos and they kept their own cap badges but the royal marines had also set up commandos and the royal marines are part of the the, the navy so uh this meant that you could have an armed force of guys who were trained as commandos but working for the navy so in 1942, and he had the idea early in 1942, he said we should have an intelligence assault unit. And this assault unit, it's a 30 AUs, 30 assault unit, this assault unit, its job would be to go in with the frontline troops and get intelligence, get code books, papers, anything that people in naval intelligence wanted. It came at the time when other people were thinking of roughly the same thing. His memo actually went in three weeks after the Bruneville raid, which is a very famous raid for scientific intelligence when a whole lot of commanders were parachuted onto a cape in France, dismantled and took back a German radar set, evacuated by sea, parachuted from the air and evacuated by sea. And it was a brilliant operation, Operation Biting. I think Fleming must have thought, well, we'll have some of that. Let's, let's put this up. And so he did this and he had to put it through the system and through combined operations and the complicated backstory of, of all that and it was first used on the Dieppe raid which is the 19th of August 1942 and then it even got ashore. Dieppe was a disaster in many ways but that was the first try to do this to try to get into German naval headquarters and from there it developed. The next big operation was Operation Torch which was the invasion of North Africa with American troops in, in November 1942 then the invasion of Sicily, the invasion of Italy and then into the D-Day invasion and through through France and Belgium and into into Germany but it became from 1942 onwards a useful tool for the navy to get hold of equipment and intelligence through its own people you mentioned technology and this was as you suggest crucially important it wasn't just a question of one propeller being slightly superior to another propeller i mean there were things like mines which could have closed off access to the british isles for shipping there were things like the, the, the codes, the, 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 um, the Enigma codes, which the British were having difficulty deciphering at a time when the Germans were able to, to read about 80% of our codes. So this kind of technological um, and scientific knowledge was absolutely fundamental, wasn't it, to the um, success of the war? Somewhere in the book, there's a quote where, where Churchill says, I mean, the nature of this war is technical. This isn't just muscle and armament. Whoever's going to be better at technical questions is going to win. I mean, war, by its very nature, changes technology. If you look at the developments that come out, I mean, there's a vast amount of money and, and uh, blood and treasure spent on and improving weapons that are bigger, faster, longer. And, you know, the Germans have always been terrifically good at science and technology. I mean, it's just a fact. You know, many of the Nobel Prizes, if the Germans hadn't been persecuting the Jews, they'd have won the war. They'd kept their brains and, and turned all those people to war effort. They would, have, they would have won. But of course, you know, absurdly, through anti-Semitism, they drove many of their finest brains away. But German organisation, German technology, German science has always been of a high standard. And in the case of coding, as you, as you point out, they could read ours and we couldn't read theirs. And so what we had to do was pinch the machines, get the wheels and, as it were, you know, reverse engineer to find out how it worked. And this was done with the Poles, with the French. And I try to explain how an Enigma machine works. And this is not easy. I mean, that's easy when you compare it to what comes later. 
because the tunnel machines and all the others are fiendishly complicated. And it, this is why you need mathematicians and geniuses like Alan Turing to do it. Ordinary people like you and me wouldn't have a hope. Now, tell me about the kinds of men who are recruited to the 30 Commando. What essentially happened was you had something, it was called NID 30, Naval Intelligence Division 30, recruited or had various RNVR, Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve Officers. Now, this meant that you were probably some civilian, and they put you in a uniform and you joined the, you weren't a regular RN officer, you were RNVR. So this meant you could put civilians in uniform with a bit of basic training. And these could be scientific, these could be technical people, they could be experts on various subjects. And they would be the brains, as it were, who had the technical knowledge to get the equipment, dismantle it, understand what it was, bring it back. Radar equipment, torpedoes, mines, stuff like this, coding stuff. And they were protected by this mind, if you like, the intelligence mind was protected by muscle provided by the Royal Marines. Now, the Royal Marine commanders who joined 30 Commander knew they were, you know, uh, part of an intelligence unit. Most of them did not know exactly what it was they were going after because they weren't told. Because if they were captured, they would say things. So don't tell them anything. Then they don't know anything. They're just soldiers. They're just, well, not soldiers, they're Marines. Marines aren't soldiers. They're very sticky about that point. But they are the infantry of the Navy on shore. And, well, what were they like? Robert Harling, who worked closely with uh, Ian Fleming, described them as merry, courageous, amoral, loyal, lying, toughs. <laughs> and that's, most Marines would laugh at that and recognise it. Um, you can be loyal and lying, and you can be amoral and courageous. These are part of the mix. You have to go in there, Marines and Paras and those sort of people that do what they have to do are not like computer programmers. They've got other skills. So you have this odd combination of these officers who are often very intelligent, well-educated people, and these other people. There are sometimes quite strong bonds between the officer and the blokes, and you see this in in some of the relationships. Mobile brains with firepower. That's what 30 AU is. Now, tell me, Nick, how you put together the narrative, particularly in the later sections of the book, when the, the, the final push in France is on, because it seemed to me it was a very rich, complex tapestry that you had, had woven. And I imagine it was difficult to do that and sometimes to distinguish the fact from the, the myth and, and sustain that narrative. So what, what were the challenges of that? When you say tapestry, that's that's quite interesting word because it is what you're trying to do. The story is never simple. There are it's going on at lots of levels at once. People talk about the fog of war because any one individual soldier in it only sees what he sees and doesn't understand the bigger picture. The historian has the bigger picture, but it has to be illuminated through individuals and details. And so, what any, I suppose narrative historian has to do is to try and get the over picture so so you know roughly where you are and then illuminate it and so that is a kind of a weaving really where you're trying to weave to trying to tell the big story the strategy i.e this is where we are this is what we're trying to do and now this is what it was like on the ground i think what's important is detail it all works through details this is what stories are why stories work it's 
the little detail, the vivid detail, the touch. Now, an anecdote, you can strip lots of boring stuff away as long as you leave the right touches. In a way, it's like Impressionist painting. It is not a total picture. It is an impression. And this is impressionistic. I mean, I'm not there. I'm trying to collate from various sources. You know, I've tried to be, I believe in truth wholly. You know, I do not, you must be true to what you know or what you think is is right. None of this is, is made up. All of this stuff comes from somewhere. And it is like painting. You are trying to get an impression. You try to see it or imagine how it would be. The noise, the, the, the smell, the, the kind of chaos. And if you have a man's account of what it was like for him, you can pull certain details out of what he saw. Put them next to another man's account of what he saw. Then read the official history account and say, ah, oh, this was this and this. And put those together and you hope to get um, to achieve some effect. Talking of little anecdotes and vignettes, one that sticks in my mind is, again, just in the aftermath of D-Day, when Fleming goes to visit his, um, his commandos, and he complains about the quality of the cognac. Now, should we just see that as a, his particular idiosyncratic brand of humour? What, 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 because that will stick in my mind. So what should, what, should, what should we read into that? Maybe not too much. Maybe not too much, but what it did was it occasioned a quarrel with Tony Hugo. The man who recorded that incident was in a high-strung, irritable mood. And this annoyed him. You know, we're doing this, you've come over, you've swanned over, and you're complaining about this. So he lost his temper with him. Now, this was an occasion, maybe of some regret later, because actually Ian Fleming put him into one of the Bond books as a very nice man. Now, but there was a spat. I mean, one puts this story in because it's, it's, you, these incidents are important because they reveal character or they reveal, you know, the stresses or they reveal something about the incident. Now, yes, he complained about the, the cognac, but he also quarreled with Colonel Woolley, who was the commander of the commandos. And according to another man who related this story to me, he thought that Woolley was wasting men's lives, was that the casualty rate was too high. It didn't need to be that high. So the, the word that went back to the Marines was that Fleming was on their side. He was not a sort of gung-ho creature who wanted them all to be killed. So out of this slightly quarrelsome atmosphere, we get little insights. Now, I may be wrong in, in interpreting this, but I've picked out these details to try and illuminate, you know, they, they throw a little pencil light, maybe, on, on history. What would you say, Nick, was 30 AU's greatest achievement? Was it the capture of 400 tonnes of German naval records near the end of the war? Yeah, uh, I think that is a that was a terrific coup. Really, I, I don't know that it's ever really been matched in the sense that the Germans took Europe to war in two world wars and caused an enormous amount of trouble. I mean, really, the Germans caused problems for Europe from about the 1870s to 1989, you could say. The whole long Prussian expansion, if it died with East Germany in 1989, that is a bloody long time. That's a, you know, more than a century of trouble from the Germans. Well, by capturing the naval archives 
First World War, from the 1870s, but the First World War and the Second World War, this was an absolute incredible treasure trove for historians and analysts and all the rest of it, because you had everything in there. And these were taken back, they were used for the Nuremberg trials, but they were, as it were, a historical resource of, they've all gone back to Germany now, but they've been microfilmed and kept. That was a coup, and Fleming went over to bring those back. But there were other things they did. They captured certain German scientists, particularly a man called Helmut Walter, who later came to Britain and was brought to Britain to bring his technical skills to Britain. And so they did some really rather amazing captures, I think, of submarine technology of various kinds of new technology, particularly this man Walter who helped invent the first jet engine and new kinds of submarine. And so, yes, they got, I put it in the book, as the software and the hardware of, of the German mind. I thought it was interesting that although individual characters like John Godfrey as a possible model for M and other people crop up in Ian Fleming's fiction, it's the world which emerged from the war rather than the world of the war that inspired his fiction. It's the, it's the East-West standoff, it's the, the technology, it's the, it's the espionage, isn't it, rather than the, the war that he was involved in. We have to remember that when he wrote the first Bond book, which came out in 53, 1953, this is the coronation of the new queen. This is the Elizabethan age. The Georgian age is gone. The war is over by eight years. Everyone's moved into another world. And in fact, though, it's the Cold War. The point is the hot war ends um, and the Cold War takes over. The, the Bond stories are... William Gibson described him wasn't he, as a late imperial hero. It really is. It's the end of the British Empire, you see, and the Cold War. So on the one hand, you know... Uh, Bond is sort of fighting the enemies of the empire, trouble in Jamaica from Cubans and, and, and things like the fringes of empire. But it is the Cold War. The books are about the Russians, the, uh, the enemy there, and gangsters, of course. So there is a new world of, of gangsterdom that is a sort of these Mr. Biggs and, you know, the, the Bond villains are kind of rich terrorists, really. And Smirch, I suppose, is a terrorist organisation. So it isn't the hot world. It has to have a civilian front. It's not wartime. The world is at peace. It's more like the world of Buchan, where John Buchan, of the, you know, the first just before the war, the world is peaceful. Nobody really knows the secret game that's going on under the streets. So it's an ordinary casino to you and me, but no, there's a, there's a duel going on between the gangsters and the secret services. So, yes, the Bond novels are set in the civilian, so-called peacetime world, and they're about the secret war between East and West, or, or the civilised and, and the gangsterdom. No, he doesn't write. There are odd scenes or vignettes, the memoirs that go back into the war, and Octopussy, the story I look at, certainly does have a, a wartime thing in it. What he took from the Second World War, I think, was some a certain quite deep knowledge of how the secret world is organised and how it works. And then he took that and parlayed it into a kind of fantastical fiction, you know, where Bond is a sort of superhero in, in many ways and a fantasy projection, you know, beautiful girls and incredible cars, wonderful meals, you know. It, it's a lovely fantasy for the age of rationing. And he travels exotically. 
Even the early Bond films, you, you had endless shots of Sean Connery on the tarmac, showing people who'd never travelled how you went in an airline. They are, you know, lifestyle consumerist things. You have product placement and names in there. So they're, they're the rise of the consumer society in the Cold War, is modelled in, in, in the Bond books. They're really historical novels now. I mean, they're really... You have to look at them, and you're looking at a different lens. I mean, the films reinvent them. The latest Bond novel, you know, Carte Blanche, it's in Helmand Province, Bond is in Afghanistan, it's the modern world. But those novels, the original ones, they're, you know, in a couple of generations, they'll be as far away as Walter Scott. You know, they are, they're historical novels. Another vignette that'll stick in my mind, I think, is in the middle of the war, Fleming, on his way back from a conference in Jamaica, turning to his colleague and saying... After the war, I'm going to get 10 acres in Jamaica and write novels. And it's exactly what he does, isn't it? Yeah, he knew what he wanted and he did it. I think he was very driven in that way. The Flemings are a remarkable, you know, hard-headed Scottish family. His grandfather, you know, made a fortune, founded his own bank, and his grandsons went and really made their way in the world in a different way. And he knew what he wanted and he got it if he wanted... Keeper's a great womanizer, but he marries the, the divorced wife of a press baron, so he gets a kind of status. He has this job working for Lord Kemsley where he gets two months' holiday a year, January and February, where he goes to Jamaica, and on his typewriter, he clacks out a Bond novel. And those books, let's not... He's not just going to write there and tap out the old thread. Those books... The achievement of Bond is the equivalent of writing something like Sherlock Holmes for Conan Doyle. You have created a character that probably everybody in the world knows. That is no mean achievement. He died very young, smoked and drank, died at 56, for goodness sake. But there, this fantasy figure that he invented, and, and good, hard, well, journalistic prose, he's a good writer. He, you invent a character that not only lives in literature, but within film, then becomes a brand that's incredible. They're making the 23rd Bond film now. It'll go on forever. The, 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 the books have made millions. The films have made billions. This, this is an incredible achievement to take, to have a sort of realistic, bureaucratic job in the war and yet work on it with your imagination and then create this world like the Sherlock Holmes world, invented and yet real, the world of Sherlock Holmes is a wonderful late Victorian world. Well, this is a world of the 50s, full of fantasy as well. And it was John Betjeman who pointed out, you've done it, you've made a world like Sherlock Holmes. And that's a great creation, I think, and um, all credit to him. Nicholas Rankin. Ian Fleming's Commandos is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you haven't yet come across it, do look out for the first part of this October podcast, which features an interview with Tim Geel, author of Explorers of the Nile, The Triumph and Tragedy of a Great Victorian Adventure. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up for it by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.